1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, the Bible says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Happy New Year, and welcome to the first Brookwood Church Sunday Message podcast of 2023. Today, Associate Pastor J.C. Thompson brings you the message titled, Restoration. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm so glad to be here, and y'all sound fantastic. I don't know if y'all, uh, if Christmas uh, brought, brought some singing to y'all, I don't know what happened. Y'all sound great back there. Good job. Hey, uh, are there any small people in here, any children and, and students in here? Give me a little whoop whoop. Yes. Oh, that's a joy to my soul. Any older people in here? Give me a oh yeah. All right. Come on now. <laughs> hey, uh, man, I am so glad to be here. I'm so glad that you have joined us today to welcome a new year. I'm glad you're here too. Thank you for being here. And thank you for joining us online today. Uh, you can if you got your Bibles with you. We're going to be in John chapter 21 today. This is an instance where Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he's appearing to his disciples and I chose the theme verse because one of the central uh, people in this story is Peter, and he writes this particular verse after, after this. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, we find our theme verse, and it just says this. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So, after you have suffered for a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. Peter here is speaking of God's kindness, and I think he's speaking particularly about Jesus's restoration of him. If you don't remember, Peter had a big fail. Jesus told him he would do it, but Peter denied even knowing Christ three separate times. Now, in this particular passage today, we're gonna to talk about Peter's restoration after he rejected Jesus Christ. But I think it's also important to understand the context in which John is writing this story. Now, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, you'll know that John seeks to attempt to explain things that are extremely complex, extremely difficult. In fact, you read that poem in John chapter one where it talks about the word becoming flesh and how he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about how Jesus is not just a human being who was born, but he is God himself. And that he has no beginning nor end. And while that sounds great and we know the end of the story and we go, oh, that's wonderful. You can imagine him writing this letter and trying to explain that there is one who's both God and man. In John chapter 3, he records Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, where he talked about a new birth. And Nicodemus asked the question that all of us should ask. How does that even happen? How can somebody be born again? Does he go back into his mom and that's how he's born again? Like, what in the world? And then, after all these miraculous things that Jesus does in the flesh, he dies. And his disciples who had followed him, who had learned from him, who had sought to imitate him to the people around them, they're scared. 
They're confused. And then what some of us might think clears up all the confusion, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And yet the disciples seem to be even more confused. How does this happen? How can someone be resurrected from the dead? And then Christ appears to his disciples trying to leave them before he leaves for a longer period of time than three days. Pictures of heaven, a few parting words and a purpose to pursue. And then he asked his disciples to wait, to wait, go to Galilee and wait. And that's where we find our passage today. And so if you got your outline, I want you to take it out and I want you to see that Christ's restoration first declares our limitations. It declares our limitations. John chapter 21, verse one. Scripture says this, later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples besides the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night long. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. One of the most important complexities of this particular passage of Scripture is trying to understand why the disciples went fishing in the first place. And scholars debate this. Option number one is that the disciples were disobeying Christ's command to stay and wait for him to appear to them again. Some people believe that they were disobeying. They were so antsy waiting on him that they just had to leave. They couldn't stay there. Some attribute that particularly to Peter's failure, his rejection of Christ. He didn't want to ultimately do what Christ had commanded him to do, which is to be the rock on which the church was built. Remember that? And he was scared. He was scared of what Jesus thought about him. And so he took off in disobedience. And because Peter's a leader, no matter what he's leading them to do, some of the disciples went with him. That's option one. Option two is that these guys need to eat. In the midst of waiting, they need to eat. And so how do they get food? They get food in the way in which they were trained, probably since they were young boys and they went fishing to get some food. That way they didn't have to go and buy some. It's also possible that their money was running out And so they would have sold any fish that they caught to provide for them however long Jesus was going to take to appear. Regardless of where you fall on this debate, the reality is this. The disciples went to go fishing and they failed. They failed miserably. The one thing that they set out to do at this period of time was to go and catch some fish and they got blanked. In fact, some of this is y'all's experience in fishing. That's why you don't like it anyway. Every time you go, you get blanked. You know, my dad used to say that there's a difference between fishing and catching, and he liked to catch. Uh, You know, Jesus enters into this story, and it's almost like he's poking a little bit of fun at them when he says, hey, fellas. That's actually how the Greek is translated, fellas. Hey, fellas, did you catch anything? 
This small piece of a conversation between Lord Jesus and his disciples illustrates exactly where the disciples were at this point in their life. Remember, Jesus gave them a big picture of the mission that they were to accomplish, that they were ushering in the kingdom of God on this very planet. He even said that they would accomplish even greater things than him. And yet at this point, they're scared, confused, and they don't know what to do. Jesus told them they would be fishers of men. And perhaps, perhaps in this moment of confusion and fear, they wanted to go back to something they knew how to do. And that was just catch fish. But then in the midst of all that, Jesus had died. Hopes, dreams of a new kingdom were dashed. Disorientation at any single attempt to find how to live a God-honoring life without Jesus in the flesh, without their teacher at their side. But perhaps more shocking than the fear and disorientation is the fact that Jesus did come back. He did exactly what he said he would do. He was resurrected from the dead. And right now he's alive and around somewhere. But the disciples are operating under this new reality. What in the world's possible in this life? What can we actually accomplish? What can we do? Confronted with this incredible miracle of resurrection, not to mention the miracles that Jesus performed when he was alive, the disciples blank at what is a very human activity. In fact, the one activity that they would probably tell you they were good at, catching fish. See, this isn't just a picture of their limitations in fishing. You know, I have a theory, and this is JC's theory. I don't know that these guys were actually good at fishing. In fact, every time you see them in the Bible, they're not catching fish. Maybe they were never good at it. I don't know. I haven't done the scholarly research to figure that out, but... I just, I just have this feeling that this isn't just a picture of their inability to fish. It's a picture of how they're feeling to do really anything without Jesus at their side. If Jesus died and isn't with them, how can they do all the things that Jesus said that they would do? How in the world could they accomplish more than what Jesus could accomplish? You know, when we stand in Christ's presence, we are keenly aware of our limitations. In fact, the more closely that I grow towards God and godliness, the more aware of how far away I am from him. The closer I get to the light, the more darkness in myself I see. And this one moment is just a small picture of what it looks like to truly be in an understanding of who Christ is in comparison to yourself. As Jesus stands on the shore, which by the way, is probably the most difficult place to catch fish. And he looks out at professional fishermen and he just asked a question, caught anything? Romans three describes our limitations in this life as this, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. No human being naturally seeks after God. It is always a work of the Spirit. There's nothing in us that reaches out to God. 
Not only that, but even if you could, even if it were all up to your effort, you could never become righteous. You don't have what it takes to become a morally righteous person all on your own. No matter how gifted, how experienced, how much money you have, none of that makes you right with God. We are truly limited. It's what makes New Year such an odd experience for all of us as human beings. We have this picture of what we could become, but we're also confronted with the last year of what we did with all that time. We seek to make new goals, but when we look back, we go, we didn't really accomplish what we set out to do last year. Why even try? In fact, that's the new fun, exciting thing to do is either come up with a new word to describe how you'll fail again this year, whether it be habit, practice, resolution, whatever it is, or just don't try at all. New Year's is one of those times where we are confronted with the fact that we are only human. And yet, we desire to be more than that. In fact, how many of you have thought in the last week, just the last seven days, about how this next year you're going to be more righteous, you're going to have improved sleep habits, you're going to spend less money, you're going to spend less time on your phone, you're going to be more generous with those around you, you're going to be less consumeristic, you're going to be more kind, and you're going to be less angry. Every year confronted with our limitations. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, hey guys, it's going to be okay. You can do it. Just keep trying. No, he says, did you catch anything? How's all that working out for you? Then watch what happens. Verse 6, then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll catch some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Now, here's the deal. I don't know if Jesus made a deal with all the fish in the water that day. I don't know if he like Aquaman them into like staying on one side of the boat. I don't know what he did. I don't know. One thing is for sure. Jesus once again changes things for his disciples. Some of you in this room are trying to live outside of your limitations. And God's been trying to blank you. In fact, this week, I've been praying that God blanks you if you're living in disobedience to him. Some of you are only aware of your limitations you're not looking to Jesus Christ. You're only looking at how unworthy you are, but not the offer that Jesus has extended to you. But notice this, the disciples immediately obeyed what Christ asked them to do, immediately. And they listened to Christ's command in the midst of their failure, and they benefited instantaneously. Will you? What is Christ calling you to do in obedience? Are you fully aware of how limited you are? 
Will you obey what Christ has to say? Secondly, Christ's restoration leaves us dumbfounded. Now, be honest, I use that word for two reasons. One, it starts with a D, and two, the children are in here, and I'm going to enjoy them saying that word to you. Dumbfounded is a fun word, one that we don't use very often. But I think that's exactly what the disciples were feeling. Verse 7, then the disciple Jesus loved, who, by the way, is the one who wrote this book as we see at the end of this chapter. I just love that. I love how human these people are. Oh yeah, he doesn't say what his name is. He just says, this is the disciple that Jesus loves. It's like, you know, I just see them picking teams, you know, right before on the schoolyard. So the disciple that Jesus loves said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat, pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only a hundred yards away. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. Don't miss this. None of his disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After Jesus provided another miraculous catch, John tells Peter, hey, that's Jesus on the shore. Peter put on his outer tunic, and he leaps into the sea, which is crazy to me because there's a perfectly good boat and they're gonna get there eventually, right? But why did he do this? People don't normally put on clothes before they go swimming. Why did he do this? Here's why. Peter knew he was about to go interact with Jesus and he didn't wanna come to Jesus unprepared. He didn't wanna come disrespectfully to Jesus. And so he would rather come overdressed and wet than underdressed. In fact, any time you greeted people during that time, there was most certainly some type of physical contact that was going to be made. And Peter didn't have a lot of clothes on because he was going fishing. Tough to cast the, the net when you got some stuff keeping you back like a tunic. And so he throws on his tunic, he leaps into the water, most certainly to get next to Jesus to just touch him. You got to remember, he was just dead not too long ago. He wanted to spend time with Jesus and being with Jesus was way more important than getting his clothes wet. Some of us don't do that. We wait till the situation is so perfect, so right in order to spend time with Jesus. And you know what's fun about Jesus telling the disciples to wait? He could have shown up when they don't have any clothes on, which is exactly what he did. He showed up when they're fishing. He's not waiting for you to get everything right. He just wants to be with you. And we got to get cleaned up. Our prayer closets have to be arranged just right. 
We got to be up to date in our reading plan. We got to have all our lists checked off just before we get some time to pray and spend with Jesus. But Peter understood that time with Jesus, however imperfectly, was worth whatever effort it took for him to spend it. What I love is Peter gets to shore and there's already breakfast. How did Jesus catch those fish? Did he catch fish? Did he just say fish? I don't know. These guys who were fishing come back to shore and Jesus had already caught some fish. He didn't need them to catch any fish to eat breakfast because he's Jesus. He doesn't need your efforts to accomplish his will. The point wasn't breakfast. The point wasn't catching fish. The point was to remind all of the disciples, especially Peter, that Christ is going to continue to provide for their needs even after his resurrection and certainly after he ascends back to the Father. He did not lose any power because he died. I'm gonna say that to you again. Jesus did not lose any power because he died. Don't gloss over this. There are small things in the text that if you aren't reading carefully, you might miss. And here's one of them. Jesus prepared breakfast by a charcoal fire. That phrase is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in the book of John. This is the setting of Peter's denial of Christ. The only other time a charcoal fire is talked about in the New Testament is when Jesus saw Peter deny him as soldiers are warming themselves by a charcoal fire. As Peter comes to shore to spend time with Jesus, that fire must have been in his memory as one of the spots that he failed Jesus. In fact, even the idea of catching fish would have been a reminder to Peter of his failures, not only at fishing, but his disappointment in the fact that he won't be fishers, he won't be a fisher of men as Jesus called him to be. He tells him to bring these fish on shore. Why? Because he needed to cook more fish. Now, could he have made more fish? Absolutely he could have. He's Jesus. He could say fish and they could jump in his hand. Don't lose the wonder and mystery of who Christ is. But you know what? The most wonderful, mysterious thing for me in this story is how he tells the disciples, bring some of the fish that you caught for breakfast. Jesus, God desires to partner with us. It's what the new year's about. What is God asking you to do. He asked the disciples to go and bring those fish on the shore. And Peter does. 153, you know, there's this struggle. And then Peter jumps out there and he pulls the nets on shore is what the scriptures say. Probably meant Peter was a big man, a strong man, that he could pull all those fish on shore himself. And the presence of Jesus Christ provided a meal. And this meal was not any meal. It was a bre breakfast provided by a king. Now, I love this part of this passage where it says, they're so confused. They know it's Jesus. 
but they don't want to ask if it's Jesus. Several translations say it in this way. None of them dared to ask if it was truly him. Why? Why wouldn't they ask Jesus if it was him? Well, first of all, that's a weird question to ask a person that you know. Like if I saw you and I knew you and I said, hey, is it you? That's weird. Can we all just agree? It's just a weird thing to say to another person you know. But I think they, they knew, especially with Jesus, they should believe he's really there. Like they should believe he was really resurrected from the dead. Of all the people on planet earth, his disciples should know it's him. And yet, they're not really sure what they're experiencing. See, Jesus' presence on this earth had changed their very lives. And when he died, they felt lost without him. And now they're confused, they're disoriented, trying to figure out the metaphysical reality of a resurrected Jesus. Yet they knew. They knew he provided the breakfast. They knew that when he said to cast your net on the other side, that's the very thing that Jesus said when he called them to follow him. All the things that he had said, all the things that he had taught them, all of them always came true. And yet the body of the man that they knew in front of them was different. This body could pass through walls. This body still had the piercings of the crucifixion in his hands. They knew, but they didn't understand. See, I think this is a picture of what true worship of God looks like. Reverent fear and awe. In fact, I would say being dumbfounded. See, I think it's so interesting that those who spent the most time with Jesus Christ seem like the ones who are the most confused. Does this describe you? Has your worship or understanding of God become routine or stale and you just kind of have this perspective that you've got it figured out? Or did you come into this room disoriented about what even is a new year? How can I pursue God and yet know my limitations? How can I depend on him and yet put forth effort? How can I worship and say these words when it feels like I'm filled with doubt and fear? I think all of us, especially in the society in which we live in, are becoming less and less astounded by things. But that's not because we're searching less. I think it's because we are becoming less and less satisfied. Just take social media use. They invented this thing called the infinite scroll. You just scroll and keep going. You don't have to click a button that says next page. You just keep going and going, and going, and going. A picture of infinity. But the things that you keep scrolling to see, it's almost like they're incredibly finite. There's pictures of recipes, and people making fun of other people, and scores of sporting events, and you just keep scrolling to find satisfaction, and what you find is after an hour or two, there's been nothing that truly satisfied your desires. 
but one interaction with Christ, one revelation from him is always satisfying. And that's what these men were finding. Who is this man was not the easiest question to answer. This is what should warm our hearts every time we come into this room. Every time we open our Bibles, every time we begin to listen to someone preach God's word faithfully, we should be astounded by God. We should be mysteriously aware that we are completely unaware of how incredible Jesus Christ is. We should be so surprised that the Spirit has more to guide us into. Hebrews 11, 28 and 29 says this, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. And Jesus was still showing his disciples that no matter where I am, I can still provide for your needs. And what you need to fulfill the mission that I have called you into, I can provide. Is your picture or understanding of Jesus Christ and the gospel second nature to you? Have you domesticated the astounding nature of Jesus Christ and his work here on the earth? Has your worship grown stale? Like the disciples, just wanna ask you this year, show up to the fire as much as you can, every day if possible, to spend time with God. Lastly, Christ's restoration defines our purpose, defines our purpose. Then after this amazing breakfast, Jesus proceeds to restore one of his disciples. He had previously given Peter a picture of who he was to become and what he was to do. Matthew chapter four, verse 19, Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Matthew 16, 18, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Peter himself was called to be a fisher of men and that Peter would be used to build the church of Jesus Christ. But after Peter's rejection of Christ, do you think he still thought that was true? Watch how Jesus restores him, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. 
grieved, some translations say. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. It's important to note just how much Jesus wants to restore Peter fully and completely. See, the fire was not the only picture that Jesus was providing to Peter. The miracle of catching fish, as we talked about, was one of the first miracles and the miracle in which Jesus provided to call Peter to follow him initially. He also asked Peter the same question three times, which is the same amount of times that Peter rejected Christ. You got to notice here that Jesus doesn't say to Peter, hey, Peter, it's cool. No big deal. He makes Peter, in the most gentle way possible, confront his sinfulness. He takes Peter back to that time that he rejected him. He asked him the question the same amount of times, and he gave him a picture of what was possible in the miracle of catching the fish. Gently, ever so gently, pointing out the truth of what Peter did. Jesus will always confront you with who you are. He will always confront you with the reality of your sinfulness. He will always do it gently. But he will never do it in a way that is false. In order to cover over your sin, it took the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his body. It's not just a, hey, it's cool. The forgiveness of your sin is a free gift, but somebody paid the price for that gift. And this very God-man who paid the price for that gift was standing in front of Peter confronting him with his sinfulness. See, the penalty for sin has to be paid. It had to be paid for Peter's rejection of Christ. And it had to be paid with Jesus' very life. Your rejection of Christ cost him his life as well. See, when God makes an offer to you, it's always a, an offer of juxtaposition. It is God's holiness and your sinfulness. It is God's perfection and your rejection. It is God's perfect generosity and your utter selfishness. And God is offering forgiveness to you. He does this all throughout Scripture. David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, just to name a few, confronted with their own sinfulness, tearing their clothes, their tongue being singed with fire. God's holiness 
confronted with your lack of holiness. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Jesus was giving Peter a future taste of both his call to follow Christ and his purpose both in his life and in his death. Peter would die like this. Jesus not only restores Peter fully in giving him the same call that he gave Peter initially, which is to follow him, but he gives him a picture of what it's truly going to cost him to follow Jesus. But can I say something to you? I bet Peter, confronted with a resurrected Jesus, knowing the cost of his shame, looking into the eyes of Christ, the cost that he was about to pay was nothing in comparison to what he felt before Christ restored him. And I think Peter was willing to do whatever it took to never feel like that again. What would you do in Peter's situation? Jesus restores you, but then he tells you, you're gonna be crucified. And then he asks you to follow him anyway. Would you be willing to pay that cost for Jesus Christ? This is the cost that all of us are asked to pay. Self-denial, the crucifixion of our own flesh. Every day, we're to live an obedient life to Jesus Christ. For Peter, that cost was totally worth it. Christ is worth self-denial. Are you willing to do that? I wanna give you just a quick illustration. You know, when I was growing up playing baseball, uh, I used to bat second which is a fun place to bat. If you don't know, the job of the first batter is to get on to base. That's their job. Doesn't matter how, walk, hit by pitch, single, double, whatever. But the purpose of the second batter is not to get on base. The purpose of the second batter is to move the person who's on base forward. You're supposed to get the leadoff man into scoring position and you're supposed to avoid grounding into a double play that gets you both out. This year, this moment with Christ is an opportunity for you to bat second. Instead of thinking through your resolutions, your goals, your habits as ways to advance your life forward, why don't you start to think of ways how you can move the purpose of Christ forward in someone's life? If you're in this room today and you're being confronted with your sin, look to Christ. He is willing to forgive your sin in exchange for his life. 
He wants to forgive you fully. And I, I pray and ask that today you'll come and ask for prayer. How can you move forward? How can you move someone else forward in their life with Christ, in their relationship with Christ? Kids, as you go back to school, who needs an invitation to church? Who needs, who needs to be shown the love of Christ in your school? Who needs the loving presence of a Christ follower for a friend? For the rest of you in this room, I want to give you one opportunity. It's at Ministry Spotlight today. In, in several weeks, we'll have a class of parents whose children have been placed into the foster care system or they're at risk of their children being placed into the foster care system. We're going to have an opportunity at Brookwood Church to share the gospel with those parents. But it's not just the gospel through words. It will also be the gospel through the way that we love them. And so we're asking you to do two things, to pray about doing two things. One, get a group together and prepare a meal for every week we have class. And not just prepare a meal, but to come and serve it to those families and to love on them. The second opportunity you have is to be a mentor with them. What does that mean? It means being next to them and answering all their questions about life. That's what it means. But JC, I don't know all the answers about life. We just talked about your limitations. You're exactly where you need to be as long as you can point them to Christ. Now for the rest of you who are in here, especially those of you who have families, I'd like to present you with a gift to start this new year. I'd like to pray a blessing over you. As we show the fruit of the Spirit on the screen, I think we've got that from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Do we have that? If not, you can look it up on your phone. Oh, there it is. Wonderful. I want you right now to pray and ask God to show you which portion of the fruit of the Spirit is God wanting to manifest in you and your family this year. I just want you to take a moment to do that. I'll open us in prayer. I want you to take a moment to receive from God what is that portion that he wants for you this year. And then I'm gonna pray a blessing over all your families. Let's make this year count for Christ's kingdom in spite of how it impacts our own. Let's pray. God, as we open our ears, our hearts, our minds to you, God, what portion of the fruit of the Spirit do you want to grow in our lives and our families' lives this year? I pray, God, that you speak clearly to our people today. God, I ask you right now to everyone who hears my voice, whether they're in this room or they're online, God, I pray by the power of the Spirit of God that the portion of the fruit of the Spirit that you revealed to these people today, I pray, God, that by your power, you would grow it in this family, that you would grow it in these people and I pray, God, it would be a testimony to the love of God that you have for the world and how you work through this family's life. 
I pray, God, that you make the things that they seek to do for your kingdom excel beyond their wildest imaginations. I pray, God, that you give them success when they share the love of God with their neighbors, their friends, their coworkers, and people that you randomly assign them to love. I pray, God, that 2023 would be a year that they feel your presence more closely and accurately than any year prior. And I pray, God, that you give our people revival through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bless us, Lord Jesus, for your kingdom and your glory. It's in the name of Christ we all agree and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for being here. Hope you have a happy new year. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. One way you can grow closer to God is to spend time in his creation. This week, spend time walking outside, praying and thanking God for his wonderful presence. Coming up next week, we'll begin a new series called Promises and Power. It's a walk through the life of Joshua. To prepare, read Joshua chapter 1. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. You can email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org, or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our Connections team. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, and have a great week.